Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Behind the Bastards, a podcast That's it. I've done my job. We're introduced. It's a podcast. Oh. <laughs> That's good work. Thank you. All right, we're taking the day. Everybody take five. All right, cool. See you back next week. Okay, no. Uh, talk about bad people, worst ones. They're actually all history. filming. He's all that in uh, yeah. in our space right now, so we can't. <laughs> well, I guess we might as well talk more about the John Birch Society. With me again uh, are Dan and Jordan, or Jordan. Jan and Jordan, or Jordan. Uh, hosts of the Alex Jones focused podcast Knowledge Fight, which I will probably be listening to when I go on a run right after this. Um, Brag. <laughs> hell yeah. Hell yeah. Someone has an iPod. <laughs> iPod Nano, motherfuckers. Damn. Somebody is ambulatory. Congratulations. <laughs> so. We're, we're talking about the JBS, uh, and there's a quote that opens the book on the John Birch Society that I've been using as one of the sources uh, for this episode, uh, The World of the John Birch Society. And the quote that opens the book is by a guy named Don DeLillo. Uh, a conspiracy is everything that ordinary life is not. And it was a good quote to open a book about the John Birch Society with because I've been thinking about it a lot, not just while writing this episode about the JBS, but in general while thinking about, you know, everything that the Birches wrought on American society. Because what was actually happening during the period of the John Birch Society's rise to prominence was that a very fucked up world order was establishing itself in the wake of all of that post-war promise. You know, people were, broadly speaking, kind of optimistic 
it, it in sort of the wake of the Second World War that like maybe mankind had turned a corner. And sure, that's why yeah. they fucked and had all those babies that we yeah, have to deal yeah. with now. Let's raise, yeah, we they everyone decided to fucking raise the worst generation that ever existed. Yeah, <laughs> right. Bunch of dicks. Bunch. That of would be assholes. my quote for the uh, for if you were going to write a new John Birch Society book, you could use a quote from me, which is like "bunch of dicks." Yeah, that's what that's what I'll use to open my book about the John Birch Society and Not about the idea. Papa Sucker. <laughs> so, the era of the Birch Society's chief period of relevance was also the era in which the New Deal started being slowly picked apart. Right. So, like. You know, we have an economic collapse. We institute this very robust program of of like a s- social safety net and protections for workers. And then in the post-war era, all these rich guys, many of whom were John Birch Society donors and sympathizers, dedicate their lives to tearing it apart. Now, this period of time was also the period in which the Cold War was at its most frightening. You know, the height of the Vietnam War happens during sure. sort of the, the 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 peak of the John Birch Society's relevance. Everything's kind of going wrong in America in this period, and in this period right after things had been going really well at least by the perspective of white people and a lot of white people were like what the hell happened and communism. bob welch yeah exactly bob <laughs> welch slides reason, in and is like yeah. communism yeah you got it while <laughs> he's causing all of the things that are bad to happen he blames it on communism yeah it's fucking smart man so because <laughs> well, of all this in a sense <laughs> yeah in a sense smart yeah i mean being terrible is a is a skill yeah you know? yeah definitely it's yeah. true so because Man knew of, his turn times tables when he was four years old. He, prove yeah, it. He's clever. <laughs> That's prove why, it. again, you got to slow down the smart kids. You yeah. know, I'm not going to say smart children deserve head injuries, but, you know. Then don't. Well, Sophie. <laughs> stop just short of there. Yeah, stop just short of there. No no helmets for the smart kids, right? Can I, uh, can I ask, are you, are you saying that for periods of time you should deprive smart children of air? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's a nice, not legally actionable way of describing it. Make all children deep sea divers. Yeah. And have them deal with the bends every now and again. Yeah, don't Jeez. don't forcibly restrict them from air, but make them do wreck diving and get nitrogen poisoning. Yeah. That's like my it. that's how we fix society. Yeah, if you if you think about it, back during this time, they only used to paddle the kids who weren't succeeding in school. And now, where are we? If we yeah. reversed it around, what if they paddled kids for doing too well at school? I think anybody yeah. would be ashamed of succeeding. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and that's how we should live. Okay. So, um, you know, because of all this, I actually think that Bob Welch was actually a, a different sort of conspiracy theorist from most of his followers. Uh, you know, the bulk of rank and file birchers were conservative Americans who had been brainwashed into an irrational fear of communism and were willing to believe that it was the cause of all of their problems when it in general was not Bob Welch and his inner circle. The guys who got to read the politician were the kind of rich and powerful men who saw any refusal of the people of the world to bow to their whims as communism. And when you think about it that way, Welch's hatred of Eisenhower makes sense because Ike wanted to live in a society, and Bob Welch did not. He wanted to be a feudal lord, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. a lot of criticisms about Eisenhower, but Eisenhower wanted to live in a society that provided benefits for the people living inside of it. And Bob Welch said, fuck that. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, the followers of the John Birch Society were more of the, why is our society suck so bad? It must be the communists, not the people deliberately tearing it apart brick by brick. Probably. Like our leader. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. good. That would make sense. 
Yeah, it's mm-hmm. the difference between the like consumer and the producer of the theory. Like that disconnect that isn't clear to the followers necessarily of like what you're be the what path you're actually being led down. Yeah, yeah. I think that's why Bill Gates has a podcast now, so he can really clear things up for uh, people. My coworker, you know? Bill Gates, in the yeah. podcast field. <laughs> I am excited to have him on the episode about Peter Thiel. <laughs> that is gonna be some spicy conversation. <laughs> See, now, if you could get him on the episode about him, that would be a huge get. It would be fun to get Bill Gates on the podcast and then just scream at him about, like, (laughs) Windows XP for an hour and a half. (laughs) Nothing about, like, any of the actual crimes he committed as the CEO of Microsoft. Just, like, really hammer him on XP. This was not intuitive software, goddammit! He's just crying by the end of it. (laughs) Uh, In 1960, President John Fitzgerald Kennedy was elected president of the United States. I shouldn't have said president was elected president. You know what I mean. JFK became the president in 1960. Never heard of him. Yeah, he wasn't that famous. In the years before he was gunned down by Bernie Sanders, he enacted a broadly progressive agenda, except for all the saber rattling at communists and hard war cold warrior shit. Most reasonable people can look at JFK's legacy and acknowledge that he did some reckless, violent shit in the name of fighting communism. One of those reckless, violent things would be getting us into Vietnam, which didn't work out super well. Some might say, uh, Robert Welch rough with the smooth as, uh, as Dan likes to say, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Robert Welch looked at JFK, who, again, brought us to the brink of nuclear war and got us into Vietnam in order to fight communism. He looked at JFK and because JFK was like, I guess we'll we'll give the civil rights movement some of what they want. Bob Welch was like, that motherfucker is a communist. Big time. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that that motherfucker is a communist. So. This is not to say, and in fairness to Bob Welch, he did not think that JFK's opponent, Richard Nixon, was any better. To Welch, JFK was a stooge of Walter Reuther, the leader of the United Auto Workers Association, while Nixon was a stooge of Nelson Rockefeller, then the governor of New York. Welch felt that the 1960 election was just a referendum on whether Reuther or Rockefeller would be the boss of the United States under a one-world international socialist government. Man, that guy did not see Soros coming at all. No. Soros swinging in to steal both those spots. Yeah, yeah. That's what Soros in the- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soros, Soros saw an opening and he just, whoa! Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's very funny. It's very funny how scared people used to be of unions before they got destroyed. So Welch had organized his society into revolutionary cells in order to fight that international socialist government he believed was taking over the United States. Their primary weapon was the force of perceived public outrage, which they wielded in a variety of ways. From the world of the John Birch Society, quote, Welch had in mind for how the John Birch Society might resist the depredations of the communist conspiracy while awakening the apathetic and brainwashed American people to what was actually going on around them, including the use of front organizations, little fronts, big fronts, temporary fronts, permanent fronts, all kinds of fronts, he wrote, as well as the deployment of petitions, massive letter writing campaigns, and other methods of exposure. It was time, Welch believed, for an organization which has the backbone and cohesiveness and strength and definiteness of direction to put its weight into the political 
political scales of this country just as fast and as far as we could in order to reverse the gradual surrender of the United States to communism. But because Welch always saw the Birch Society as an educational organization as much as a political <laughs> one, he also wanted to establish a speaker's bureau and a national network of reading rooms where the best anti-communist books, including his own, could be purchased or consulted, and to expand the reach of conservative periodicals such as American Opinion, The Dan Smoot Report, and William F. Buckley Jr.'s National Review. Until... So, Later. Until later. Yeah, yeah until later. Yeah, that <laughs> stopped. Buckley, he, yeah. he was also one of the first backers of conservative radio broadcasters, which in that period was a pair of guys called named Fulton Lewis and Clarence Mannion. But like mm-hmm. he's very much on the cutting edge of like you can you can see what Welch is actually doing here as the first organized start of what became the right wing media sphere that's like yeah. now an entire galaxy unto itself. Bob Birch is the first guy that says, number one, we need Need this, and we need to be tying like radio broadcasters and conservative magazines and and right wing like books it, together. We need to be building places where right wing thinkers can gather and people can go and find their work. Like this is an important part of actually taking over society and tw- right. turning well, it. He's described as turning it away from communism, but like he 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 foresaw what needed to be done, and he was really the first guy to proceed with doing it. It's like you do all this stuff because you know that whatever you're doing wouldn't pass muster at like a regular place right. of yeah, publishing right, right, or whatever. Right. You have to create your own industries because what you're doing is is ludicrous. Uh and you want to pass off this ludicrous shit. Yeah. And the right wing always has an inherent advantage there uh, whenever it comes to media because the idea is they want to consolidate thought into a single thing. Whereas the left wing media is ostensibly about, uh, uh, I guess, sharing ideas to see who can do well. I don't know, but it's it's a, it's a way of uh, uh, creating a unified thought process for all of these right wing people. It's cold yeah, shit. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. good shit. And he's, you know, he's a real <laughs> it's good shit. It's either good shit or cult shit. Yeah. One of the two. Yeah, I said, it's cult, cult, shit. I said cult shit. Oh, you said yeah. cult shit. Oh, okay. That's what I but heard. Home dude's a trailblazer. You got to give him that, you know? Mm. He blazes a trail. A bad trail. Mm-hmm. It's a trail yes. to like, it's a trail to like one of those, like somebody's septic tank has like flooded into a, a depression <laughs> in the earth and created like a little lake of feces. Yeah. Like it's a trail to a shit lake, but it is a trail that he has blazed. He had cool. a machete his way through some underbrush to get to that poop lake <laughs> one of one of the things i loved about that quote you just read was the uh, the idea that he's talking about how they have to create all these front groups and yeah you know like that in particular <laughs> because i've read a bunch of john birch materials and people who are associated with them and one of the hallmarks of their accusations is that everything is a front group for yeah. communism and they never prove any of it yeah. it's always just everything is a front group and I think a lot of that comes out of the like well, the awareness projection. of yeah like this yeah, is the yeah. mentality that we have we have to create front groups so people don't associate this with us yeah, yeah you know, it's it's you know a, it's a mix- great ideas whenever you're like we can't let anybody know about these yeah it's simultaneously a tactic and something that I think happens just it happens automatically when you're yeah. doing that like number one it's a tactic because if you accuse people of what you're doing it distracts and justifies your actions yeah. but also if you're doing that sort of shit you assume everyone else's because you yeah. don't want to you don't want to have your are we the baddies moment no, mm-hmm. no, no, no. <laughs> and also you want to think it's a good idea 
So your enemy yeah. has to use the good idea. They can't be doing something. I mean, yeah, because why it's would they have a different strategy? Exactly. The thing yeah. is, like, part of why I didn't push back. Normally, when I read about one of my, you know, bastards being a child prodigy, I push back because they're usually dumb as shit. This is a good idea. It works. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah, it took a <laughs> yes. long time. It didn't happen in Bob Welch's <laughs> lifetime, but his plan worked very well. That's <laughs> like, true. That's true. Like, yeah, you have you to also, be. You also get yeah. the sense that Look, probably you gotta give it up to the Somali pirates every yeah. time again. You just gotta give it up to the Somali pirates. He didn't probably come up with a ton of all of this though. Like he's the His figure- brother did. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, he's yeah. the figurehead of a lot of it. But like a lot of those yeah. early CEOs from the National Association of Manufacturers probably. I would suspect had a bit more to do with some of the crafting of these yeah. these ideas. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say exactly because these are obviously secret conversations between men plotting in secret. Um, none would dare call that a conspiracy. None would nice. dare call that a nice. conspiracy. Uh, Nicely done. But I do think, like, obviously, like the fact that Welch, the fact that he got people together in a he got right wing moneyed interests together to inset yeah. in a concerted way we have to forcibly tilt this culture right and it's going to be a mix of tactics including creating a propaganda empire yeah. Um, yeah. that sounds oddly similar to some country i remember right around 1930 yeah a country that bob welch probably would have been pretty happy in <laughs> pretty stoked <laughs> if they had stayed the course you know yeah i don't know uh you know it, it, it's 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 hard to say how much because like obviously you get the like you look at Fred Koch, member of the John Birch Society. Fred Koch's kids go on to do more effectively what Bob Welch tried to do yeah. his whole life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Were they copying Bob Welch or were they copying their father, a, who was the yeah. guy who gave Bob Welch the idea? We don't I don't really know. Sure. But also um, Fred Koch didn't stay around uh, for all that long with the, uh, the bird. No, he right? made he, the best decision of his yeah. life and died. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel yeah. like I you made the best decision of our lives. Yeah. I feel like I, I remembered something of him like trying to distance himself at some point. I yeah. Might, I, I mean, might be misremembering a, a number of. Yeah. I believe he did when like it became. We'll we'll talk about that. Like okay. the John okay. Birch Society, you know, reaches its sell by date, so to speak. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the campaign against Justice Earl Warren convinced many pundits and politicos that the John Birch Society was just as bad as the totalitarian communists they opposed. An editorial in the Chicago. Chicago Sun-Times described the content of many letters sent by their followers as evidence of brainwashing, which it was, you know, yeah. they're, they're flooding people with letters that all sound the same, that all include the same sound bites. And it's not because they're being like a lot of people think like, oh, my God, they must have centralized a letter writing campaign. And I think it's more that all of these people are reading the same propaganda, yeah. you know, Um now, because the United States has always been the United States, there were those who were willing to stand up in public and defend the John Birch Society. South Carolina Democrat Mendel Rivers said they were justified because the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus the Board of Education was effectively the death knell of the Constitution. Uh, <laughs> nah, nah, nah. I'm just a simple yeah. Southern Democrat, but I think slavery is a great idea. Yeah. If black people can go to school, do we really have a country? <laughs> <laughs> So, Welch was definitely a trailblazer in how to weaponize far-right rage, and the moral majority and its successors, like the Tea Party, essentially used John Birch tactics in order to get off the ground. You can see variants of these tactics in the far-right's use of social media today. The idea behind it all remains the same. You try to popularize a fringe idea by setting off a blizzard of generated outrage that has the effect of making your cause seem more popular than it is. Mm -hmm. You know, in the 1960s, it's get thousands of 
John Birchers to write letters to the same handful of politicians. Nowadays, it's flood comment sections and and whatnot with like you know uh, 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 hot takes and shit. Yeah. It's it's swarm <laughs> yeah. people on Twitter or whatever. But it's the same idea. Um, and if now, you just repeat something loud enough and often enough, enough people will believe it's true that you can move forward with it. Yeah, it's the reason that human society is destined to go increasingly better places. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, <laughs> Welch was also a trailblazer when it came to infecting the minds of children with his nonsense. In September of 1960, he started advising his followers to get elected to local PTA boards all around the country. That way, they'd have a say in how their children were taught about history and politics. And then and give o- them candy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, kids, you want a papa sucker? Get on over here. You know who's trying to keep the papa suckers away from you? Commies. Commies. Old Joe Stalin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in August of 1961, Welch announced a John Birch Society essay contest open to undergraduate students around the nation. The author of the best essay on why Earl Warren should be impeached would win $2,500 in prize money. Wow. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, you really that. can't. And again, the fact that he hates Earl Warren more than he's hated anyone else in his life is just because of Brown versus the Board of Education. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a long... Uh, chain and string and recurring theme that you'll always see throughout all this is like severe opposition to civil rights just being yeah. paraded around you, as uh, against communism. Yeah, 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 you yeah. can make an extremely strong case that the entire modern right wing was born out of a desire to stop black people from going to right, white schools because the yeah. moral majority's primary founding goal was to stop Oral Roberts yeah. University from having to take black students. Mm. Like that was like the the main reason that the moral majority yeah. started. Like it's all it all comes back to why can't we just have white people in our rich kids schools? <laughs> Yep. Yep. Good stuff. So Bob Welch told the New York Times his goal was to, quote, stir up a great deal of interest among conservatives on the campuses of the dangers that face this country. And you could see this as essentially a precursor to something like Turning Point USA, right? He he felt that U.S. colleges were filled with Marxists, and he wanted to try and encourage conservative thinking among young college students. So he started, like, giving people thousands of dollars to write essays about why Earl Warren is the devil. So (laughs) It's a racist to the bottom, if you will. If only only he... Hadn't uh, got Frankfurter. Yeah. Only, <laughs> if I like it, everything could have been different if you just had a different professor that yeah. you didn't fight with. Oh yeah, man, it, another reason hot dogs make me feel sick. All right, yeah. All right. Come, on now. come on now, come on now, come on. Here we go. So, so do you have a rim shot sound effect <laughs> for Jordan's pun? She won't even give me air horns anymore. Ah. <laughs> uh. So. Uh, yeah, uh, the good news about Welch's plan to infect the minds of college students is that back in the 1960s, at least a few things about America were actually better, and he was met by stiff resistance from all sides for trying to infect the minds of impressionable children. So that's nice. Yeah. He actually got pushed back on. (laughs) That's, uh, I presume whenever they were like, well, we should not send our kids to colleges at all anymore, and we should homeschool them. Yeah, I think a lot of that has its genesis in this, to be honest. Uh, The president of the Bar Association condemned Robert Welch for the contest's personal vilification of one of the chief officers of our government. Roscoe Drummond, a nationally syndicated columnist, called the society radical and reckless. 
The early 1960s were also a period in which the mainstream media increasingly turned its eyes towards the John Birch Society. Mabley's investigation had sort of opened the floodgates. In early 1961, the Santa Barbara News Press published an investigation. The reporter, Hans Eng, wrote that the group had started a cell in Santa Barbara the previous year, operating in semi-secret existence and creating several chapters. Because most reporters have always been somewhat derivative, Ng's piece mostly focused on the politician and Welch's wacky theories about Eisenhower, because that was the stuff that was easiest to mock. Meanwhile, the more insidious work the John Birch Society did drew little attention. To his credit, Ng did report that, in September of 1960, Welch had advised his members to take over local PTAs. The Post News' editor, a guy named Thomas Stork, spent the next several months authoring a series of damning editorials about the society, stating that democracy suffers when fear of communism leads to irresponsible, substantiated charges of treason or evil connivance against our political, religious, educational, or cultural leaders, and that traitors should be dealt with by the courts, not by vigilante groups. So that's good. <laughs> did he end that with, which we learned from 10 years ago when McCarthy did it? <laughs> we just did this, and, guys! And we'll still be learning. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 2020. Yeah. <laughs> no, in 2020 we'll go, let's talk to John Birch Society members and let them loudly and lengthily explain their beliefs without any pushback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Let's pretend we haven't done this already. Put him on Rogan! Yeah. yeah, at least at this point in time, journalists were like, you know, critical of fascists. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, Mr. Welch, you, you like candy. That's all you're uh, known for, right, Candy? Candy, you like Love candy? candy. Yeah. 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 Could so, I offer uh, you a junior mint? <laughs> <laughs> Time Magazine wrote the most damning article about the society in the early 1960s, claiming that it operated under the hard-boiled dictatorial direction of one man and pointing out that, due to the society's proven ability to organize its members and push them to concerted action, they could not simply be dismissed as some sort of comic opera joke. Time magazine dubbed the politician Welch's Mein Kampf and noted with fear that its militant words and thoughts are barely a goose step away from the formation of goon squads. Well, so to time be fair, used to be good. Time magazine named Hitler Man of the Year. So what? Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was the man of a couple of years. Like, let's be fair here. <laughs> yeah. He was on the cover. Yeah. Time is basically Nazis. Yeah. So they should like. The politician. And they oh, should that's like true. Welch. The GPS. That's true. Maybe yeah. they were saying this in a positive way. Is the politician the man of the year back in this time? <laughs> Maybe they're saying that it's his mind. Sure Eisenhower had a, a year. <laughs> in a complimentary way. Mind yeah. Kampf is a bestseller. <laughs> Finally, the new Mind Kampf. <laughs> uh while the campaign to impeach Earl Warren fizzled out without any sort of success around 1962, furor over the John Birch Society sparked calls in Congress for an investigation into the group. This furor. Actually, furor, yeah, furor over, <laughs> furor over the, all right, come on, come on now, get that, get that sound effect. A little, 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 little furor <laughs> joke there. So this actually led several of, uh, like, the fact that like all of this, you know, media comes out about the society forces several of its members who were highly placed in government to go public, basically to get ahead of news cycles revealing that they're secret John Birch Society members. One of these guys is Representative Edgar Highstand, a Republican from California. Uh, he identifies himself as a member of the society on March 30th, and he outs one of his fellow ca uh, Californians, a Republican congressman named John Russolo, as a member as well. Uh, both men say that they're 
like, because there's also calls to investigate the society in this period because a lot of people are freaked out and rightfully so. Yeah, and both they're of weird these, like, as hell. <laughs> yeah, they're weird <laughs> as hell. And both of these guys are like, we would love to be investigated. Please investigate us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah. one of them actually jumped out of a window whenever he was caught at a 24 person communist orgy. I'm pretty sure that's, <laughs> isn't that how that one went? Topical. There was a hu- Hungarian member of Parliament Getting it in yesterday. there. Getting it in there, Dan. <laughs> uh, like, I would love this. Like, they're just like, yeah, hey, uh, we're fine. Anybody can investigate us, but I should tell you that anybody who does is probably going to be called a communist. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's fun because like a lot of people are like, we should investigate these people, and the John Birch Society is like, yes, please investigate us. And then like the Rabbinical Council of America is like, they should be investigated, but not publicly, because all you're going to do is give them a big court platform to like let well them done, rant to the country. Yeah. Nicely done. They, they were pretty. <laughs> they remembered. Let's say they remembered some <laughs> shit that had happened like 15 years it ago. Wasn't long ago guys hey you know that thing that just finished happening (laughs) maybe not maybe we shouldn't let that happen immediately again uh and thankfully you know there's not massive like they don't get their gigantic national platform in the way that they'd kind of hope there so at that point again people were smarter about some things back then Now, throughout this whole period of time, the John Birch Society grew and grew, signing up thousands of new members each year. All the sunlight of attention did not eradicate it, interestingly Mm. enough. Not the best disinfectant after all. I thought it was going to do that to Scientology, and here they still are, huh? Turns out sunlight's actually not a very effective disinfectant. You know, it's a good disinfectant. Yeah. 409. Machetes? Oh, no, okay. yeah. Oh. Yeah, machetes is this, too. Is this podcast brought to you by 409? <laughs> I mean, you know, at the end of the day, right? Hard day, long day, you're working, working hard, kind of stressed out. You pour yourself a nice hot glass of 409, <laughs> squeeze a little bit of lemon in there. Really just cleans you out. Anyway. Robert. We we accept all legal responsibility for this advice. <laughs> yeah, no. I think Sophie's fine with this. So, uh, as the society employed, yeah, that's why I'm. I think we're gonna get we're gonna get that that big four hundred nine endorsement, Sophie. (laughs) They're gonna they're gonna give us the big bucks because that's the thing I noticed the other day when I was in the grocery store, like four different aisles of beverages, like one different aisle aisle of solvents. So interesting. Why don't you drink solvents and increase their profitability at least fourfold? First of all, Seems brag like that your grocery store is actually stocked. Oh, yeah. Nobody lives up here. <laughs> and a lot less people live out here since they all started dying. I haven't um, seen so, 409 since 2019. Oh, I got well, quite a stockpile. Up. I'll mail you some, but you got to drink some of it. No. It's good for you. Cleans out your insides. No, you're 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 getting trumpy on me right now. <laughs> oh no, that's bleach. Bleach is totally different from four oh nine. It doesn't stain your clothes when you vomit it up. <laughs> is is a, a gaslighting a regular segment on your show? So much, yeah. you guys. <laughs> <laughs> is the four oh nine gaslighting bit oh a winner? Is that one gonna stick no. around? Is that a recurring bit that's gonna It's okay. not a bit, that's just life <laughs> advice. People people enjoy lifestyle advice from podcasters. Like sure. look, if a lot of people are willing to take a podcaster's advice on what pill you can take for your brains, why not what sort of solvents you should drink? You're already, you know, like it's it's interesting that we've evolved from machetison onto uh, <laughs> solvent, solvent yeah. cocktails. The key with a nice cup of four hundred nine is you want a hot glass, and you pour room temp four hundred nine into a hot glass, <laughs> squeeze a little bit of lemon in. We call that a 
2020 highball. <laughs> also cures Ebola. <laughs> yeah. Robert you will not have. I will tell you, <laughs> Ebola will not be on your mind as a concern once you drink your first 2020 highball. Robert, What's up? <laughs> Robert Evans never found a hole that didn't need to be dug deeper. You should just, can, can we just go to an ad break while we still have a podcast? <laughs> Yeah, let's let's see what the fine people at Johnson and Johnson have to say about what kind of solvents you can drink. <laughs> the evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
Ah, we're back, and I just took a nice lukewarm sip bit. of 409. Stop this bit. <laughs> so, back to the John Birch Society. Uh, so, yeah, they, they, you know, blow up in the media in, like, the early 1960s. Um, they start getting all sorts of attention. Congressmen come out saying they're with the John Birch Society, and suddenly they're kind of, like, on the verge of breaking into the mainstream. And this is very exciting to the worst people on the right who suddenly have uh, feel like they have an excuse to be even shittier. Uh, and it's very frightening for people on the left. One of those people is a little guy you might have heard of named Bob Dylan. In May of 1963, he wrote a song about the John Birch Society titled Talking About John Birch Society Blues. He planned to play the song on the Ed Sullivan Show, which was going to be his first televised appearance anywhere. So, like, this he, he was he's serious. not a big he star. He was going for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was going to be on, yeah. and he wanted this. Is, he decides, I'm going to play a song about how bad the John Birch Society is for my he's first do, moment on TV. He's doing his uh, Nirvana rape me on SNL moment. Yeah, that one. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but not- CBS standards and practices worried that the song was controversial, and they told Bob Dylan he <laughs> well, couldn't play. We don't want to offend the fascists. Yeah, we don't want to offend these guys who are basically Nazis. <laughs> yeah. And I will say this for Bob Dylan, in an act of actual courage, he refused to go on the Ed Sullivan show at all rather than be censored. Um, nice. so he, oh, that's fun. Yeah, he turns Dude, down his first TV appearance. Because, to be fair, they're yeah. not probably worried about insulting or offending the fascists as much as they're aware that yeah. these people are also the heads of industry. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their boss is so a member of the JBS. So they are defending the fascists. In, yes. a, in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In a way. <laughs> so for years after this point, Bob Dylan would play the song every time he did a concert just as like a... Now that's less, I don't think he does it anymore because most people be like, who the hell are you talking about, Bob? (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, the people who are running things now, you morons. Yeah. I never liked the title of that song. I thought it was a little clunky, but. It is. It's not a great (laughs) song. Like, look, Bob Dylan has had an arc to his career and he was not as, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not a giant Bob Dylan fan, to be honest, but. I would prefer a Gordon Lightfoot cover of uh, The Wreck oh. of the John Birch Society. <laughs> the Wreck of the John good. Birch yeah, Society. I would appreciate that one. The legend lives on <laughs> so from the candy man wall down. down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that'd be a fun 11-minute interlude. <laughs> Just sing the entire of The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. A lot so. of instrumental breaks. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the story begins in China, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) As money and members flowed into the John Birch Society, Bob Welch continued to experiment with new ways to make use of the instrument he had so successfully built. The letter-writing campaign hadn't achieved its goal, but it had proven to him that he could effectively mobilize his followers to real-world action. Following in that vein, he decided to embark on his most ambitious project yet, a massive crowdsourced list of every communist agent in the country. He told readers of the bulletin... Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Making lists of of names is a great idea. Idea. crowdsourcing it too is a really totally, good totally yeah real yeah. democracy wanna, shit right there you really don't want to vet any one of those names well it's i mean it's how you create the best list yeah, is, yeah, yeah. it is also uh, echoes of bill cooper in this you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh echoes of his like a uh, caddy or whatever he called it the the Kaji. citizens and Inte- caddy <laughs> the citizens yeah, intelligence yeah. echoes of alex jones in this mm-hmm. yeah uh welch told readers in the bulletin we wish to build up and have available for all future research needs the most complete and accurate files in america of the leading com simps communist sympathizers, socialists, and liberals on those who are trying to change the economic and political structure of this country so that it could be comfortably merged with Soviet Russia in a one-world socialist government. In 
And since we do not yet see any chance of putting a sufficiently sizable staff to work on this job, we have decided to make use of the energy, knowledge, libraries, pamphlet collections, determination, and dedication of our members instead. So That's so smart. That's so smart with these right-wing conspiracies. Like, you turn it into that augmented reality game. Yeah, like yeah you before, make it a game. Yeah, Gamify before they shit. had any idea, now we've got citizen sleuths dealing with the true crime podcasts, but it's fucking anti-communist liars. So yeah, it, it's fucking yeah. awesome. And he estimated there are about three hundred to 500,000 actual communists in the country and another million <laughs> dupes, allies, and sympathizers. All right. All Those right. numbers so. were not at all made up. <laughs> <laughs> he did not just pull them completely out of his asshole. As 1964 came, the John Birch Society was at the apex of its power and influence. It was still widely reviled and condemned by most mainstream Democrats and Republicans, as well as basically all of the media. But its first six years of life had proved that there was a strong hunger for the outright fascist politics and violent anti-left rhetoric of Bob Welch. And in the 1964 elections, the nascent far right was about to get its first viable presidential candidate in a fella named Barry Goldwater. Hey, he's a good dude. Hey, hey, hey. He's a good dude. He is a good dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what's wild is that he's basically a Democrat today, but we'll talk about that at the end. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I know, right? Barry Goldwater. No. Barry Goldwater was an arch-conservative senator from Arizona. He was elected for the first time in 1952, and for an idea of the kind of spot he occupies in the conservative canon, Goldwater was directly succeeded in his job by John McCain, who praised Goldwater as the man who transformed the Republican Party from an Eastern elitist organization to the breeding ground for the election of Ronald Reagan. I like that he uses credit to John McCain, calling breeding it a breeding ground, ground makes breeding it ground sound great, as yeah, creepy yeah, yeah. and terrible as yeah, it is. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't think he meant to use the right word there, <laughs> but he, he did convey the right feeling. <laughs> I want to I want to congratulate this man on creating a cesspool of the best people. Yeah. <laughs> he really he really made like a bacterial tide pool yeah, of, of yeah. filth that Ronald Reagan congealed out of and vomited his way into the national consciousness. And I think that's great. I'm John McCain. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I've crashed so many more planes than most people ever fly on. <laughs> and oh, cheated on John. more wives. All right. Hey. hey. So, one thing that's important to keep in mind when we talk about the Republicans of the 1950s and 60s is that the Deep South used to be a Democratic stronghold. It started to switch during LBJ's time in office, and one of the reasons why it switched was old Barry G. When he announced his campaign in January of 1964, Goldwater was literally in crutches from a recent bone spur operation. He made headlines for being one of the first, if not the very first, modern presidential candidates to launch a campaign from his house. The New York Times spent most of the page space of its article of this discussing how his wife had prepped for the big day. To give you an idea of where Barry stood on the issues, on October 16th of that year, he gave a speech in the Midwest where he stated in his first major talk on civil rights, forced integration is just as wrong as forced segregation hey there we go (laughs) hey all right what's really great is kind of lightly ignored segregation Mm -hmm. that's the sweet spot in the middle right there we have segregation and removing it would be as bad as having it so let's just keep having it yeah (laughs) makes don't throw the baby out with the racist bathwater. come on it's like showing up at the site of like a shooting while a paramedic is putting on a tourniquet and being like hey man putting that tourniquet on is the same as shooting a man So, from the New York Times, quote, he called the busing of school children and other measures to end de facto segregation morally wrong and said that busing was an example of doctrinaire and misguided equalitarianism. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love the misguided, you know. Yeah. Ah, misguided these, equalitarianism. These people, these people think that they want equality and they're just crazy about it. They're just Oh, wrong. those misguided fools. Uh, thinking their hearts humans are in the are right equal. place. They mean well. Their hearts are in the right place, I yeah. swear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you know how uh, how uh, Barry Goldwater made a bunch of his money? Candy? No. He invented uh, underpants that had ants on them called uh, Ants in My Pants. And uh, I believe you that's the name of it. You are fucking me. No, no I'm serious. That is, he, yeah, <laughs> I, do, I do know that. I actually do know that. I read that. Uh, no, the free market. That. No, 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 you did. But I, I, it's, I, how can you think that that's true? Yeah, he invented novelty underpants in his younger yeah. uh, days. And made a whole bunch of money on him. And now we can't That's just amazing. say Trump is a psychopath because he's got a whole rule named after him. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, the Goldwater, because you can't psychoanalyze yeah. someone because they all called him crazy, which he was not. No. Um, he was just a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> it's just all the things he believed were No, <laughs> like, yeah, they're not, though. If you're yeah. the kind of guy who got rich selling ants in your pants, the kind of <laughs> the things, like, Barry Goldwater's country is going to make things better for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's fair. It's just worse for everyone who didn't get rich selling ants pants. Ah, God, that's so fucking... I know! All of the people who, like, are the most gung-ho about the free market are also the ones who have contributed the least impressive things to it. Right? But, I mean, you like, gotta think, it was, a, it was a different time. Novelty underpants back then might have been revolutionary. <laughs> that's possible. Yeah. That's actually why 1969 had so many protests and revolutions. Yeah. It was ants' pants. <laughs> <laughs> Mao never would have come to power without those underpants. <laughs> it was, uh, I'm sorry, I just had to look this up just to be sure. It, it was Antsy Pants was the Antsy name pants. of it. Yeah. Jesus yeah. fucking Christ. Okay. Yep. Are well, they cute? <laughs> as cute time. as Barry Goldwater, Sophie. I God, a, I, I, want, I want, I want, I want visual. No, I don't. I hate all these people. I, I immediately <laughs> regretted it. Immediately. I want to see novelty underwear. Wait, no, I don't think that's a good idea. So I'm going to quote now from Politico. Even though Welch understood racism and bigotry would hurt his cause, the John Birch Society's opposition to the civil rights movement attracted Americans sympathetic to racist paranoia. For example, it consistently published reports accusing civil rights leaders of communist subversion and alleging that people of color were plotting to divide the country and control the world. So, yeah, that Goldwater... He has to, like, thread a little bit of a needle here, because the John Birch Society is too controversial even among Republicans for him to embrace them, but they have created an incredibly organized and effective, like, way of terrifying people on the right about communism and about civil rights, and so he can't ignore them either. Um, You don't want to become their enemy and then be called a communist, but at the same time, you don't want people to think you're their champion. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be Steve King. Yeah, you don't want to be, you don't want to go full Steve King, uh, even at this point. Uh, Yeah, so Goldwater wrote a best-selling book called The Conscience of a Conservative, and it can be seen as basically the blueprint for Reagan-style conservatism, even Trumpism. Oh, that'd Uh, be a great novelty book if it was just empty. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be a great thing to give for a Christmas gift. Yeah, I mean, it is it is very vacant, the actual morality. Like, what, for an example of the conscience that Barry Goldwater, like, says, one of the reasons how Barry Goldwater, like, one of the reasons why he explains that, like, civil rights laws are immoral is because the government shouldn't infringe on the right of free association, um, oh, which is the right to discriminate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 
Now, uh, yeah, so Goldwater publishes this book. It's like a surprise bestseller. Mainstream Republicans like start falling in love with this guy's rhetoric, which is basically just 10% calmed down John Birch Society rhetoric. Um, and yeah, we say so globalists. We don't say the... the yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, Goldwater is really kind of like the... Um, He's kind of like the typhoid Mary of 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 John Birch society <laughs> philosophy. Uh, he brings it into the mainstream, um, cloaked in you know uh, uh, ethical conservatism or whatever the fuck. Sure, you know? sure, sure. It's it's great. And there were, in fairness to some of the Republicans at this time, there were Republicans in the period of time who like recognized what Goldwater was doing and condemned it openly. The Republican governor of Pennsylvania. Uh, described him as having a crazy quilt of dangerous positions, uh, including the use of tactical nuclear weapons for basically any reason. Um, Why would anybody think that was crazy? Yeah, he was he was a big like like Goldwater's big thing was that generals should be allowed to deploy nuclear weapons in the field. Oh, sure. Um, Because if if they can't, then everyone knows they can't make that decision. Exactly. And then where are you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Makes like sense. we should, he like Goldwater. Like one of the things he would say about nukes is that they're just another weapon. <laughs> just, they, they, Woof. they are not Barry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I've sorry. The, did you miss everything that happened the last twenty years? No. <laughs> I've got this button that sets off every volcano in the world at the same time, and that's just a normal everyday weapon. It's in like a handgun. Yeah, you, know? you just have it right there just if you need it. Another weapon. Ah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a stick. Yeah. <laughs> Look, if the caveman could have exploded all the volcanoes on the planet at the same time, they would have done it, okay? So, like Trump, uh, Goldwater, you know, comes in, like, like swings onto the political stage saying very, very fringe and extreme things and gets condemned by a bunch of Republicans and everybody who's not a Republican. And also, like Trump, none of this stops his polit- him from succeeding politically. And he defeats all of his more traditional conservative rivals, including Nelson Rockefeller, um, and becomes the nominee in that year's Republican convention. I put him on the, like, sort of the scale of, like, more successful than Ron Paul, but not as successful as Trump. Yeah, not as successful way. as Trump, yeah. but right definitely yeah, middle yeah. Uh, space. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And he's critical. He's the key to both Trump and Reagan having space. I think Bush, both Bushes probably would have been able to win an election either way because they're kind of more traditional conservatives, mm. which isn't a compliment, but no. just kind of a fact about them both. Yeah. Um, Goldwater is really a Reagan slash fucking... Um, uh, uh, Trump style politician. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he, the reason he beat all of his more traditional conservative rivals is that he was able to build a coalition of working class people. Uh, most of his voters were Southerners, Midwesterners, and libertarians who felt left behind by the GOP. He railed against Eastern elites, saying at one point, Sometimes I think this country would be better off if we could just saw off the Eastern seaboard and let it float out to sea, which, you know, is the same thing you hear today. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they also add the West Coast too, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they do. They add the West Coast, and I would only say do that to Florida. And let's like be Bugs honest. Bunny, like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> with yeah. a little saw, just yeah. Uh, yeah. start on start on the East Side and move west. And one of the Carolinas, but we can let them fight it out. <laughs> one of you can stay. I just feel like we only need one Carolina. Oh, Raleigh's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, well, I know which side you're backing, then. (laughs) No, I am not backing this. So, uh, Barry Goldwater. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, so Goldwater succeeds, you know, more than any other extreme right politician ever had up to that point in American political history. And he was only able to succeed because the John Birch Society had paved the way. Um, he owed a lot of his early success in the fact that he won the party nomination to the machinery that the society had put in place. Um, yeah, Rick Perlstein in a 2001 book on the Goldwater campaign explained that Goldwater would take the line that Robert Welch was a crazy extremist, but that the society itself was full of fine, upstanding citizens working hard and well for the cause of Americanism. The Goldwater campaign made liberal use of the society's large pool of dedicated and disciplined manpower, which now numbered more than 90,000. In effect, Robert Welch had spent years creating a nationwide grassroots movement for Barry Goldwater. The society spent millions of dollars buttressing Goldwater's support and spreading his and their ideas to whole new segments of American society. It worked to win Barry the nomination over men like Nelson Rockefeller, the Jeb Bush of his age. From Politico, quote, in 1964, backing from the John Birch Society and Republican primaries such as California secured the right-wing-backed candidate Barry Goldwater's Republican presidential nomination. All those little old ladies in tennis shoes that you called right-wing nuts and kooks, Goldwater's organizational head reportedly told him about the campaign volunteers who appeared to be Birch sympathizers, they're the best political organization that's ever been put together. So for a few years, I think, I think years. Rockefeller actually lost it immediately whenever he came out with his new slogan, which was just rock with an exclamation point. I think that was <laughs> the one that got him. Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> so Goldwater was a sensation on the right. His rallies drew unprecedented numbers of people. His followers were more like fans than political supporters. At one point, a supporter in Georgia famously created a soft drink based on the candidate. Goldwater, the right drink for the conservative tastes. Barry, a very blunt man, drank it in front of a crowd at a rally and spit it out, saying, this tastes like piss. <laughs> All right. Well, there's one thing that I like about him. Fine. Yeah, that is, that is pretty great. That's pretty yeah. great. That's pretty great. <laughs> Goldwater. Huh. I don't know. That's impolite. <laughs> <laughs> this guy made a soft drink for you, Barry. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, just have the grace to be like, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't take like piss at all. Nah, yeah. that's why they like him. He tells it how it is, Dan. Do you know how much work goes into making a soft drink? Uh, not a lot. Into that apparently one. not that much. <laughs> <laughs> he should have so tried go sugar. Goldwater regularly packed in a dozen rallies per day, flying around the country in his Boeing 727. He framed himself as a law and order candidate, telling supporters, something Aww. must be done and done immediately to swing away from this <laughs> obsessive concern for the rights of the criminal defendant. He told another audience that in order to defeat lawlessness, he would redress constitutional interpretation in favor of the public, presumably by appointing judges who didn't believe defendants had rights. Sure. One of Goldwater's more famous quotes can be seen as a precursor to both the kind of sociopathic libertarianism practiced by Charles Koch and the ideology of Ronald Reagan. Quote, I have little interest in streamlining government or making it more efficient, for I mean to reduce its size. I do not undertake to promote welfare, for I wish to extend freedom. Oh, I was assuming that your quote was going to be something along the lines of like, the 13th Amendment didn't outlaw all slavery, guys. Come on yeah. now. I'm Hell a yeah, law and order candidate. More. You know what that means. You know what I'm saying. Come on, guys. Slavery is really just an arrangement between an employer and an employee <laughs> when you think about it. And when the government doesn't allow that, yeah, uh, that that's, that's, that's the real slavery. Yeah, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Because yeah. that makes the would-be slave and the would-be uh, person who's enslaving both someone slaves. both slaves. Now to they're the both state. slaves. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. So you really just try to think about it. <laughs> 
So, you know, Goldwater didn't give Welch everything he wanted because he didn't like endorse that Eisenhower was a dirty communist, but he was basically the best candidate that the John Birch Society could have possibly had. He even offered qualified support of their campaign to impeach Earl Warren. And best of all, he was willing to nuke communists. So, you know, really like a great, great dude. Now, doesn't it seem like you should only need one policy if your entire uh, philosophy is just anti-communism? Shouldn't your one philosophy just be like nuke communists and then we'll then we'll sort everything? Well, out? I mean, literally and then metaphorically. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. kind of what his policies yeah, were. That's fair. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's good stuff. Um, yeah, so Goldwater uh, energizes a new Republican base that had never particularly felt like it had a voice in politics before, which was not really a good thing. And it terrified a lot of, you know, the more intelligent observers at the time. One of the people who was fucking horrified watching the rise of Barry Goldwater was a young Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter was there at the 1964 RNC on assignment as a stringer to gather quotes from Republican politicians. He wasn't even like writing articles at this point. He was like that early in his career. He was just gathering quotes for his editors to use. But Hunter had an old friend who'd gotten a temp job as a Pinkerton who was were doing security for the convention. And Hunter's buddy gave him security credentials. So he was basically like hanging out in VIP rooms, drinking Barry Goldwater's liquor. Um, <laughs> just hanging out with a warm glass of 409. <laughs> 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 uh, no, he was he was pounding dexedrine at that point. Yeah, oh, Hunter was terrified. <laughs> Hunter Hunter was terrified of Goldwater, who we saw as a fascist with a real chance of winning election, and you know. Killing a lot of people. Thompson was well-versed in the John Birch Society's talking points, and he was one of a few people in the country to foresee the dark rightward lurch that the Republican Party was beginning to take. He was also mainlining huge doses of speed every day, and so he was pretty paranoid. Uh, (laughs) Which is why he writes the next thing uh, that he writes about this. Yeah, so Thompson, you know, is there when Barry Goldwater gives his speech, and his speech in the 1964 um, RNC includes the, quote, I would remind you that extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. That's like the most famous Barry Goldwater quote. And uh, he just has this like pounding, unreal effect on the audience. Um, Thompson writes later, quote, uh, uh, that he was actually feeling afraid because I was the only person not clapping and shouting. And I was thinking, God damn you Nazi bastards. I really hope you win it because letting your kind of human garbage flood the system is about the only real way to clean it out. Another four years of Ike would have brought on national collapse, but one year of Goldwater would have produced a revolution. Um, Ooh. Well, we've, yeah. we've, we've seen we've, yeah. that that might not be the case. Uh, yeah, no, I think works. he was optimistic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that might not yeah. do it. That yeah. might not do it. It might yeah. just turn out a lot of people uh, are fine with fascism. I remember yep. a lot of people saying that in 2016, yeah. or, you know, like yeah, in, yeah. in the lead up to that election. Yep. No, nope. uh, I think the uh, the sad story about all this is that Thompson was right about the danger of Barry Goldwater, but optimistic yeah. about Americans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, That's not something you usually hear about Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> no. <laughs> optimistic yeah. to a fault. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know who isn't optimistic to a fault? <laughs> Do tell. I'm so afraid. Well, the good people who make 409, my new favorite happy time uh. beverage. <laughs> 409. Grab a glass of relaxation. <laughs> oh, boy. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. 
Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. So... Uh, Hunter S. Thompson was not accurate about Americans, you know, getting horrified at a glimpse of fascism, but he was was right about the fact that Goldwater was not an outlier. Richard Nixon, the next Republican president, would turn out to be the most liberal Republican of the modern era. Every other Republican president who followed him was cut out of Barry Goldwater's mold, which means they were, in fact, cut from the same mold as the John Birch Society. Ronald Reagan, of course, gave a massively popular speech at the 1964 convention, providing a full-throated endorsement of Goldwater's foreign policy and his promise to shrink government. During his own run for president in 1980, Reagan directly aped Goldwater by stating that the most terrifying words in the English language were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. As a write-up in History.com notes, quote, 
By the dawn of the new century, Tea Party members drew heavily on Goldwater's libertarian policies in shaping the GOP's platform, disparaging not only liberal elites, but any fellow Republicans who still believed in the kind of compassionate conservatism preached by George H.W. Bush. The list of companies and industries that the government is crowding out and bailing out and taking over, it continues to grow. The former GOP vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin told a 2010 gathering of Tea Party Republicans. Historian Alan Nevins of Columbia University, a student of American politics and history and a two-time Pulitzer winner for his political biographies, saw the writing on the wall. If Goldwater and his supporters stuck to their guns, there will be, in effect, a new conservative party. And that's what happened. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Nailed it's it. good stuff. Right on, buddy. <sighs> mm-hmm. I, 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 I think you can take some smallest in getting a, a good I told you so in there before you're hung for being a leftist. Yeah. I think yeah, that's yeah, all right. You know, yeah. that's, that's the one upside you get to being a leftist. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we that get. A little bit of smugness before you're shot down by the Gestapo. We don't get any power, but we get a nice exit line at a firing line. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. The best yeah. exit lines. At a, yeah, oh. The only people who really have good responses to getting shot by a line mm-hmm. of fascists are. No. Yeah. Woo. You know what? I, you know what I'm thinking about? That's really interesting is that like in the earlier days, you know, like when the John Birch Society was all going and stuff, you'd have these you'd have those elected representatives who would have to come out as members yeah. mm-hmm. after they'd already been elected. Whereas like during the Tea Party they actually got people elected full with full knowledge of like yeah. they are part of this. Yeah, like it's those a, people. Those people may not have gotten elected yeah. had people known they were John Birch people back yeah. then. Yep. Yeah, and now everyone's fighting over themselves to announce that they're a member of whatever the new most extreme sect of the Republican Party is. Yep. Yeah, yeah. that doesn't indicate progress to me. Why not? Tragic, <laughs> tragic optimist Hunter S. Thompson really, really got that one wrong. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, the John Birch Society gave birth to Barry Goldwater, who gave birth to a new Republican Party, the party of Reagan, of George W. Bush, and eventually of Donald J. Trump. But in 1964, the John Birch Society's politics were still a tad too fringe for mainstream success. LBJ successfully painted Goldwater as something of a lunatic who would bring about nuclear apocalypse, which is part of why. LBJ won that election. It's a very famous Daisy ad. Yeah. You look it up. That's about like Goldwater's going to kill your children in nuclear hellfire. He <laughs> um, wasn't wrong though. It wasn't. Uh, he was know. not wrong. He, he was wasn't not wrong. wrong. And LBJ did <laughs> yeah, exactly, did win right. that election and went on to do nothing problematic or violent himself. So Who, LBJ, nah, yeah, come on, yeah, come on, civil the rights, president act. of can, peace, nah, civil rights <laughs> act. We forget everything else he did. Come on, mm-hmm. he nicknamed his dick. He nicknamed his dick Jumbo, though. So he did, there is and, that. And, yeah. and his famed slogan was, no child ever had their skin burned off because of LBJ. <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, you know what he'd uh, put? When he'd wake up in the morning, he'd put Jumbo in his antsy pants. Ah, nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wrap it so, in there. The John Birch Society began to fade in influence and bleed members after the 1964 elections. Uh, in 1967, the Saturday Evening Post published an article entirely focused around the society's decline. Its numbers, they said, had peaked in 1965 at 95,000, and by 67, it was down to 80,000 or so. Several high-profile congressional members stepped back from their duties and resigned entirely. The Post noted, The society has also been plagued with an internal crisis over anti-Semitism, and it has been shelled from other sectors on the political right as an embarrassment to the conservative cause. Asked if the Birch Society weren't better than nothing as an anti-communist rallying point, National Review editor William Buckley said, no, it's worse than nothing. See, William went, Buckley. He, went, uh, he turned. Buck, Buckley was also like, man, yeah. I hope they never invent something called the internet, because that yeah. shit will come right back. 
Yeah, well, and it's the kind of it's funny because like Buckley is the good guy in this story because he realizes yeah. fairly early yeah. on that the John Birch Society are dangerous people and yeah. excommunicates them to the best of his ability. Sure. Also, big backer of Rhodesia. Hey, is it? No, no, no. These John Birch people are very, very, very insane people. But uh, I do believe in white nations. Yes, of course. The, the I, I think they're entirely white nations. Yeah, the Birchers and him had common cause on that because mm-hmm. they believe that uh, the uh, Rhodesia, well, you know, fight for the apartheid state there was defending the country against communism yeah yeah you know that's that was there was yeah yeah thank (laughs) god for that otherwise we would never have gotten elon musk here so yeah Yeah. some of the society's earlier backers started to uh abandon it after the unsuccessful goldwater campaign one supporter complained welch has turned what claimed to be a militant anti-communist movement into a book selling operation his notion that the birch society is going to save america by getting people to read books is absurd so they read all the books what then there's no program with crises erupting all around the world welch talks on and on about the difference between a republic and a democracy i saw no future whatsoever for the birch society and so i quit This take was, however, short-sighted. Robert Welch was right to dedicate the majority of his efforts to writing fascist propaganda, and he was dedicated. Welch wrote every word of the Society's Bulletin for years, which by 1967 meant more than a million published words. The Society spent tens of millions of dollars over the years putting out books and magazines filled with propaganda, and of course, one young boy who grew up on those books was Alexander Emmerich Jones. (laughs) Glenn Beck, the most influential ideological founder of the Tea Party, was also raised on John Birch books. In addition to speaking fondly of the Society, he urged his millions of viewers to read the work of Cleon Skousen, an anti-communist ideologue who was a bircher himself. For a time. Yeah, for a time. (laughs) He was not uh, fully birch. Birch-pilled. W. Cleon Skousen <laughs> was too extreme for them at a certain point. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, you get the feeling that they, you know, they had to walk so that he could leap off of a cliff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Skousen, like Jones and like Beck, preached of a secret alliance between capitalists and communists to install a one-world government under the guidance of David Rockefeller, which is not that far off from what fucking Robert Welch was saying. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a step forward, but yeah. not a wild leap. If you it know? ain't broke, don't fix it, right? The John Birch Society is still alive today, and according to some reports, it has grown in the Trump era. One of their modern propaganda videos is called The Dangers of Democracy and defines democracy as mob rule, <laughs> emphasizing that the United States is a republic, not a democracy. The video ends on a quote attributed to Mao Zedong. Democracies oh inevitably lead to collectivism, which leads to socialism, which leads to communism, which leads to totalitarianism, which proves that both Mao Zedong and Hunter S. Thompson are way too optimistic. Yeah, no good. Good work. Jeez. Wild-eyed optimists, <laughs> Chairman Mao and Hunter Thompson. <laughs> oh boy! Yeah, I, I mean it's it's interesting how right he was. Welch never lived to know it, but like you can see, like even the the like every little one of his like reoccurring lines about like fucking uh, we're a republic, not a democracy. Now that shit gets like Senator Mike Lee of Utah repeated that line this year. Like, arguing yeah. why, you know, we shouldn't accept the results of the election. Um, it's well, just... He, he's right, yeah. in a sense. Like he's We not are right. a republic and not a democracy. No, no, yes. I meant Goldwater with his strategies. Or, I'm sorry, uh, Welch with his strategies. Mm-hmm. Like, he's... I don't think that it's, uh, like... I don't think you could look at what happened and say he's right in terms of, like, this is a good way to make stable, competent, yes. political movement. But he accidentally created, like... And stumbled onto a really good idea about how to break people's brains sure. mm-hmm. and really make grifts. Yeah. On the right. Really yeah, yeah. successful. 
Like yeah. he, he he made that pattern really well. It is yeah. it is weird to think that there's a progenitor that's so recent. It's like with L. Ron Hubbard, where you're like, you can't start a religion if you're if I know you. If you're like a hundred years old, that's that's too close. That's too close. It's the same <clears> way with uh, this horrifying Republican Party. It should have been like thousands of years ago that we learned yeah. how evil these idiots are. And <sighs> here that's we are. Not the way it you know the, you know the, the one of the most. One of the biggest bummers to me is that Andrew Breitbart was right about something important, which was his famous <laughs> quote that politics flows downstream of culture. Yeah. Um, and Bob Welch is absolutely evidence of that, because mm-hmm. like at, like at the time, a bunch of his initial backers were like, this is a failure. All you're doing is putting out books and propaganda. Yep. And then we like our present Republican Party is so far beyond what Bob Welch could have ever hoped for because of that, you know, and so deeply inspired, whether they know it or not, by those works of propaganda that were put out by uh, Welch and his uh, his dickhole friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, assholes. Yeah, it sucks. And we're not even going to get into like the like the Burt John Burt Society talked about the Illuminati a bunch. Robert Welch was a big believer in the Illuminati, which is. There is a yeah. great speech that he gave uh, sort of later in his career at uh, Berkeley that you can find on YouTube that I would really suggest people look up because it's so funny. These kids are just laughing at him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> These, he's trying to be very serious, yeah. and they are just clowning on him. Well, it's it's, it, very, it's satisfying. <laughs> and there, there's there's still so like I found a fun Politico article about the modern John Birch Society, and it talks about like a worksheet for one of the week's video lessons. Uh, and <laughs> so there's a multiple choice okay. question on it that asks you to identify the Illuminati. Is it a a myth? B, an alien race of shapeshifters or C, a group founded in the late 1700s seeking world government? One of those seems very specific, almost as though they want you to choose one yeah. of those. You know. Also, all of those are right, depending on who you're reading. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> depending on who's judging the test. Yeah. Bob Welch died in 1985, but in the decades since his death, his ideology has conquered the Republican Party. The statements he was mocked for making in the 1950s and 60s are now so popular that elected Republicans dare not push back against them. So that's good. One of the great ironies of this is that the man who was most responsible for acting as a vector of Birchian ideology to the mainstream, Barry Goldwater, probably would have been horrified by what he helped bring into the world. Because near the end of his life in 1998, Barry Goldwater lobbied to allow homosexuals to serve openly in the military. He was a loud and full-throated supporter of abortion rights, and he demanded legalization of medical marijuana. <laughs> By the oh, standards wow. of Republicans now, Jesus. Barry Goldwater was a fucking Democrat. Like, Barry he's, yeah. he's to, to the, the left, left of Biden of on Manchin. some things. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, we're fucked. Yeah, it's really bad. Like, when you read, like, oh, Barry Goldwater died in American terms, a liberal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh, God. That's not a super <laughs> inspiring thing. <laughs> you, either, you either die a fascist or you live long enough to finally realize, oh, these are bad <laughs> ideas. Yeah, <laughs> fuck it. Let's smoke some weed. Yeah. I'm Barry Goldwater. Much like a Coke brother. Eventually you just say, hey, whoops, my bad, guys. Yeah, thanks yeah. for that, Coke. Yeah. Yuck. Well, anybody got pluggables to... This I'd like to. I'd is like, a podcast. I would like to. Plug that does do- not sound accurate. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to plug my uh, non uh, endorsement of drinking solvents. Um, Thank you. Oh, what do you drink? <laughs> Windex. Well, are you are you pounding decks? <laughs> um, we have a podcast, Knowledge Fight. We do. 
It's Knowledge Fight. You can find it uh, if you search Knowledge Fight somewhere. Yep. And uh, uh, also, you have a book. I have a book. It's called The Quiet Part Loud. You can't find it if you search The Quiet Part Loud. It turns out somebody else wrote a uh, like little novella with a similar title. So a that's John, what it's pops up. It's a John Birch br- yeah. uh, pamphlet. Mm-hmm. It's on Amazon. <laughs> so I'm, I'm screwed. Oh, and by the way, The Quiet Part is just Jews. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yes. Uh, it would be a very different name if I was a right-wing psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you can find it at thequietpartlot.com. Uh, it is uh, free to download. You can donate or whatever if you want to, or uh, just read it. Mm-hmm. And don't scream Jews like I did. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. I avoid do not it. Do that. Avoid don't do that. that at all costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, also, listen to my podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> are, we, are we supposed to plug no for you? Is that part of this show? Did I forget? No. No, the <laughs> episode's finished. He, he can't plug. I know. <laughs> I have. I, I was, have. I was. Yeah. I have Plugman's disease. I I, I know the I know the feeling. Mm-hmm. It's tough. We're done. Yeah. Goodbye, America. <laughs> Go away. Don't drink. Get off the internet. No, no. Pound some four oh nine. Don't drink four oh nine. This seems it, like Robert. it's going to be an interesting editing challenge. Well, what's really fun is <laughs> when you get you get a half pint of four oh nine and a half pint of Windex, and you do a forty dex. That's really if you really want to get tight, you know, <laughs> really burn off some of that into the workday steam. Chris, feel free. We call that a glass ball. Feel free. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> All right, we'll be uh, hosting the show from now on, I think. Drink and solvents, <laughs> the unproblematic beverage. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts.
or wherever you get your podcasts.